All right, we'll turn in your Bible, if you have it, to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. We've been methodically working our way through this psalm, which is all about God's law. And what we have typically done is we take the first half of the message to look at the verses from Psalm 119. And then the second half of the message to zoom out and consider other biblical teaching about God's law. And here's the reason for that. The psalmist expresses over and over and over how he loves God's law. He delights in God's law. He hopes in God's law. And we have to ask, why? What is so great about God's law? Isn't law just a set of rules that tells you what you can and can't do? Well, God's law, we find, is so much more than that. God's law reveals to us his character. It shows us how we should respond when the law is broken, how restitution should be made. It's festivals and it's symbols. It shows God's grand plan of how he brings salvation to his people in Christ. This morning, we're going to look at verses 145 to 148. Okay, And this will be a little bit different in that We are going to move fairly quickly through these verses and then spend most of our time this morning on the particular case law from the Old Testament that we're going to consider. Follow along as I read in Psalm 119 verses 145 to 148. With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I may meditate on your promise. Well, we start with verse 145. With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. The psalmist's prayer is genuine. You can... You can tell because it is wholehearted. Uh, It's often when we have a a heartfelt sense of need, that's what awakens our sense of the need for prayer. Proverbs 15.8 says that the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. And the psalmist's prayer here is genuine, you can also see, because it comes from a life of obedience to God's law. The prayers of those who ignore God's law Scripture says, are an abomination. This is an interesting verse. Listen to this one. Proverbs 28, verse 9. If one turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. So God connects our willingness to hear his law and to obey it with his willingness to hear our prayer. When we face difficulties and afflictions, like the psalmist is, we often pray simply that God would take it away. And God answers our prayers sometimes by taking away whatever the thing is, but oftentimes he answers our prayer by giving us courage and grace to face the difficulty. Listen to these words from Lamentations chapter 3. This is verses 55 to 57. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit, You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. Now listen, you came near, 
when I called on you, you said, do not fear. God answers with his presence. He'll be with us in the difficulty and with courage. Don't be afraid. Obedience in the difficulty does often require courage. Sometimes we think that there's a contradiction here between God showing us his grace and mercy and then our response to the law. We think, well, God showed me grace. He showed me mercy. So I don't have to do anything about the law. I don't worry about that because God's grace, his salvation is given freely. And it's absolutely true that God's salvation is given freely. It comes to us by grace, by mercy. But there's no contradiction between grace and mercy and our obedience and duty. Because obedience is the best way to show our gratitude for what God has graciously given to us. That's why Paul in Romans chapter 12 says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He's appealing to them to obey God, but he's appealing on the basis of the fact that God has shown them mercy. Obedience is the right response to God's mercy. Romans 14, 7 and 8 says that none of us lives to himself. None of us dies to himself. If we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. He's bought us. We belong to him. And so we live to him. And scripture even tells us that God's goal when he shows us his grace and mercy, is that we would come to obey him. If you were to read the, uh, the stories of Jesus' birth, uh, if you read it in Luke, you have Zechariah's prophecy. Listen to these words from Zechariah's prophecy. So this is the end of Luke chapter 1. It's verses 74 and 75. That we being delivered, there's the deliverance, delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. When God delivers us, the right response is serving him in fear. The next verse, Psalm 119, verse 146, says, I call to you, save me that I may observe your testimonies. And I'll be really brief with this one and the next one. God is the one who providentially controls all things. No difficulty reaches us without first going through his hands. And he has the ability to solve all of our difficulties. We talked this morning in our adult class about the power that God has. He has the power to solve whatever difficulty we have. And he will do it sometimes by taking away the difficulty, but often it's by giving us that grace to help in time of need. And obedience is the best expression of gratitude for God's deliverance. The next verse, verse 147, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. Here you see that the psalmist places a priority on prayer. When he says, I rise before dawn, some of the older translations translate this as, I prevent the dawn. Literally, we would say it today, I get out in front of the dawn. And so the psalmist is saying, I'm going to get out in front of this day and I'm going to rise before the sun comes up and I'm going to spend time in prayer. It's emphasizing the priority that he's placing on prayer. It's private prayer. It's an early prayer. 
It's an earnest prayer. And we see Jesus doing that kind of thing. And the psalmist, notice here, he comes to the prayer already having God's words that he will hope in. You see that? When he comes to the prayer, he's already got God's words. That's what his hope is in. He doesn't come empty with nothing to say. He knows God's word already. It's what has given him hope. And he appeals to God on the basis of what God has already said. What better basis could there be? We see a similar idea then in the next verse. Verse 148, he says, My eyes are awake before the watches of the night, that I may meditate on your promise. Now, what are the watches of the night? little like sidebar here for a minute, just kind of historical cultural stuff. Watches of the night is kind of a, it's it's a military term. It's the idea of um, instead of counting the time from sunrise, excuse me, from sunset to sunrise, the nighttime, instead of counting it by hours, they would count it by watches. When you would post a military sentry and then when that sentry would be relieved by the next group, okay? So the watches of the night, in Hebrew culture, in the Old Testament, there were three watches of the night, beginning, middle, and morning. Beginning was sunset to 10 p.m., middle was 10 p.m. to 2 a.m., and then morning was 2 a.m. to sunrise. Just to give you some verses where you can hear that, Lamentations 3.19, Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Okay, that's the beginning. Judges 7.19, Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. So that's the middle. Exodus 14, 24. In the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic. So you can see all three watches of the night being used there in the Old Testament in that culture. But that changes when you get to the New Testament. We know that because when you read Matthew 14, verse 21, it says that in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. That tells us that by that time, Israel had adopted the Roman system because the Roman system had four watches of the night. And that makes sense because Rome is in charge there in Israel at this point in time. And so there's a new watch every three hours. You have evening, midnight, cock crowing, and dawn. So evening is sunset till 9 p.m., midnight is 9 p.m. to midnight, cock crowing is midnight to 3 a.m., dawn is 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. Four watches. And you can see that in Scripture in Mark chapter 13, verse 35. Jesus says to his disciples, therefore stay awake. You don't know when the master of the house will come. In the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning. He's naming the four watches of the night. Now, probably the point here in our verse in Psalm 119 is the same as the previous verse. The psalmist was up before dawn. In other words, before the watches of the night run their course, my eyes are awake. He's giving the first portion of his day to God's word. And then the question has to be for us, okay, is that a rule for us? It doesn't seem that we have a clear command for us to do this. What we do have, though, is an example that demonstrates what our priorities should be. So do you give time to God's word? How important is it to you? 
in regard to all the other things that are going to happen during your day? How regularly do you do that? And then look at what it is that the psalmist is doing. He says, I may meditate on your promise. Now, in the original, the word promise is not the word promise. It's just the word word. I may meditate on your word. And of course, that includes God's promises. But he's spending time in God's written word. He's meditating. He's thinking on it. He's talking with God about it. How is it that he can do that? You can do that when your heart is well stocked with God's word. Matthew 12, 34 and 35, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. And so Paul tells the Colossians in chapter 3, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And we've seen this before, Psalm 1, verse 2. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night, that I may meditate on your promise. So the psalmist meditates on God's word. Now, as you do that, as you read God's word, as you spend time thinking about it, there's probably going to be some verses that you come across that won't make sense to you, especially without spending a significant amount of time meditating on it. And today's case law example that we're going to use is like that. It's one that seems out of place at first. But as you meditate on it, there's a principle that comes into focus. And that principle, I believe, has a variety of applications in our lives. And so that's what I hope to show you this morning. And I'll ask you to join me in meditating on this verse when we get to it here, wrestling with it, considering what it's saying. But first, let's start with the general kind of principle about God's law that we're going to see today. And it's this, Old Testament case laws illustrate larger principles that have broad application. Old Testament case laws illustrate larger principles that have broad application. And since this is specifically about case laws, I'm just going to jump right to the case law this morning, and that's where we're going to spend our time to help us understand this principle. And the case law that I want you to see is found in Exodus chapter 23, verse 19. You're welcome to turn there and see the context if you want. You also find this same law in Exodus 34, verse 26, and you'll find it in Deuteronomy 14, 21. The fact that it's repeated, that it's in there three times, tells us that this was somehow very important in God's mind as a law that he wanted to give to his people. And here's what it says, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Now, when you're doing your Bible reading and you come across this, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. It's easy to just go, check, I haven't done that, don't plan to, we're good. But the point is, that verse is there for a reason, 
And it's illustrating a broader principle that does have application to our lives. And so I want to think about this this morning. The first thing is kind of a, a principle of interpretation that will help us. And that is this. When you see Old Testament laws about animals, they usually have application to people. So when you get to the New Testament, you find Paul saying, don't muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. And he applies that to how a church pays their pastor. Or you have, uh, don't yoke up an ox and a donkey together while you're plowing. And that gets applied in the New Testament to not being unequally yoked with unbelievers. So it has to do with your marriage and to a certain extent with other relationships that you have as a believer. So laws about animals often have application to people. Now, I want to say right up front, I've been immensely helped in interpreting this particular law by James Jordan. He's got a book called The Law of the Covenant, and, and it was very helpful on this particular one. Um, so a lot of what I learned about this, I learned from him. I want to just make sure that that's um, said here at the beginning. He kind of says, let's start by looking at the particulars of the law. First of all, a young goat, or your translation might say a kid. What do we have in scripture about that? Not a lot. <laughs> There's not a whole lot that we're going to find. Other than if you trace out the places where a young goat shows up in stories or in instructions, there often seems to be some kind of connection to children. Okay, so the relationship between a mother goat and the young goat is a relation kind of like a parent and a child. There seems to be that kind of association in certain places. I'm not going to take the time to go to those places this morning. How about the idea of the mother's milk? Well, under, <clears throat> until the time of weaning, a child is seen as under the protection of the mother. Okay, when it stops taking in its mother's milk, then it's kind of like a a graduation, moving out from under the protection of the mother. In fact, culturally, when that time was done, that's when a child would be presented to the father. So the mother presents the child to the father at the time of weaning. You can see that, for example, um, with Isaac being presented to Abraham by Sarah in Genesis 21. So the mother is seen as giving children to the father. The connotation here is that the mother is life-giving. She is a preserver of life for her children. Or the mother goat would be life-giving for the young goat. We also have in scripture, when we think about the idea of milk, the association that milk corresponds to teaching or doctrine, the basics of the faith. It's like the infancy stage of being a believer. So Hebrews 5, 12 to 14, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he's a child. So milk and children are associated in terms of doctrinal teaching or graduating from the basics to move on. 1 Corinthians 3, I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. 
you could also see an analogy here to the law or the Old Testament era kind of as the milk stage. In Galatians 3, 24 to 26, we read, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. So you move from guardianship to sonship and that's described as moving out from under the law and into faith. Just like a child is weaned off of milk and presented to his father, so God's people graduate from the guardianship of the law to become sons of God in Jesus Christ. And then just as a mother's milk is life-giving, God describes his law as life-giving. Listen to what he says in Deuteronomy 30. This is after the law has been restated. So they've heard it now a second time, beginning of the wilderness journey, end of the wilderness journey. The law has been restated. Here's what God says. He says, see, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you're entering to take possession of it. So the association there is, if you listen to God's law, that brings life. The passage goes on to say, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, Choose life. What does God mean when he says that? He means follow my laws. That's what choosing life is in this passage. That you and your offspring may live. Loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days. So as God describes the law, he tells them choose life. Choosing life is obeying the law. Law and life go together as God has given it. Now, as we look at this particular law, let me point out one other thing here. This law does not forbid boiling a young goat in milk. It forbids boiling it in its mother's milk. It's very specific. Okay, strict Jews would not boil any meat in milk because of this law. And they often even kept separate utensils for dairy and for meat. Well, that goes far beyond what this passage is actually saying. The point here is the relationship of the mother and the child. That's why it's specifically about the mother's milk. It's to be a nurturing, life-giving life-preserving relationship. Life and death were not to be mixed. That's what this principle is saying. Now, there are several stories that have a connection with mothers and or sons that do involve young goats. Rachel helping Jacob retain the inheritance from Isaac. There's the story of Judah and Tamar. There's the story of Samson and his wife. There does seem to be some kind of symbolic connection between a young goat and the son of a mother. Another story in the Bible that involves life and death 
and milk is the story of Jael and Sisera in the time of the judges. Jael was a godly woman. She convinced the wicked general Sisera to come into her tent to hide when he was on the run. He asked her for water, and what did she give him? Milk. And he fell asleep, and she drove a tent peg through his skull, killing him. That was a righteous thing to do. The milk of the righteous woman was used as a tool in that instance to aid crushing the head of the seed of the serpent. And then we also have in this law the idea of boiling. Now it's interesting, you have this law, there's not one violation of this specific law in scripture. You never find a story where a young goat is actually boiled in its mother's milk. There's no story like that. But there are some stories that involve boiling and mothers. And it's the mother doing the boiling and it's boiling her own child. So you have Lamentations 4.10. The context here is the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became their food during the destruction of the daughter of my people. Or in 2 Kings chapter 6, there's a famine going on in Samaria and two women make an agreement. Today, we'll boil your son and eat him and tomorrow we'll boil my son and eat him. And the first one happens and then the second woman reneges on her commitment and they take this issue out to court, so to speak. Well, we also have similar stories just after the time of scripture, when the judgment that Jesus prophesied on Jerusalem falls in AD 70, we have women boiling children and eating them to stay alive. To the extent that the Roman soldiers, these hardened Roman soldiers, when they came into the city, encountered this and were themselves horrified at what they found. Because it's such a great wickedness. It's so against nature. Life and death don't mix. And a mother and her relationship with her child is by God's design to be a life-giving, life-preserving relationship. That's what this law is illustrating for us. Now, if we were to take this and say, okay, the law is given three different times. If we look at the context of each of those, does that help us at all? Here's what you would find. In Exodus 23, the context is there's instructions given about three different feasts. The last one is the feast of ingathering. And then it says, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So you're bringing in a tithe in a festival setting and don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Then the next one, Exodus 34, is the same thing. We have the instructions about the same three feasts and then the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And then the third example comes in Deuteronomy. And this is at the end of a section of food laws. So there's clean and unclean. And it says then, after the food laws, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And then it goes immediately to say, you shall tithe 
all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. So all three contexts are connected to feasting and to tithes, not just food laws. Well, what is a tithe? It's giving God what belongs to him. It's the first portion of what you receive, whether it's a harvest or a paycheck, whatever it is. And the principle there is don't consume what you have produced until you've paid tithes. Pay your tithes at the time of harvest. In terms of mothers and children, the firstborn son belongs to God. And he was representative of the rest of the family. He's representative of the fact that all of our children belong to the Lord. For example, Hannah is seen to give her son Samuel to the Lord, and the text tells us that she did this as soon as he was weaned. So he belonged to God, and her duty as a mother was to care for him, protect him, provide for him, until it was time to give him to his heavenly father that he would serve him. Symbolically, God's people, now remember, Israel is the bride of Yahweh, the church is the bride of Christ. So symbolically, God's people are to give their children to the Lord. If the negative version then of this law was, don't consume your children for yourself, the positive statement would be, present your children to the Lord to serve him. Feasts are celebrations of life. God's provided for the needs of his people. The relationship of mother and son is a life-giving relationship. It's symbolized by the mother's milk. And what is given by God also belongs to God. Now, one thing you have to ask as you go through these laws like this is, in what way does this law help me better understand Jesus? Does this somehow help me understand what he did or who he is or something about him? And so we have to ask that question about this law. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. What does that have to do with Jesus? Let me suggest this for you. One thing scripture tells us is in Galatians chapter 4, verse 26, that the Jerusalem above, the heavenly Jerusalem, is our mother. That's speaking of the heavenly Jerusalem, but it also calls to mind how Jerusalem is spoken of in the Old Testament. We read of the daughters of Jerusalem. You can find that language in Kings and Song of Solomon and Isaiah and Lamentations and Micah and Zephaniah and Zechariah. It's very common language. The daughters of Jerusalem. Let me give you another example. Psalm 87 is a short psalm about Jerusalem. In that psalm, Jerusalem is called Zion. And it speaks about how God's going to identify his people, no matter where they come from, as being born in Zion. So verses 6 and 7 say, And of Zion it shall be said, This one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples, This one was born there. Follow the train of thought here. I know that this is kind of going around, but... Anyone who belongs to God is considered to be born in Zion or born in Jerusalem. In other words, a child of Jerusalem. Jesus uses the phrase daughters of Jerusalem in 
Luke chapter 23. And here's the point. If Jerusalem has daughters, then Jerusalem is a mother. When Paul uses the idea of Jerusalem as our mother in Galatians 4, he's building on an already well-established idea that Jerusalem is a mother. It's an association that stretches way back into Israel's history. Now, think with me for a minute about Jesus. At the time of his crucifixion, symbolically, Jesus is still part of the earthly Jerusalem household. He's under the law. He's an observant Jew, one who obeys the law. We learn in Genesis that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. So generally, the point at which he leaves the oversight and authority of his parents is when he takes his bride. So another way to ask the question is, when does Jesus take his bride? Well, Jesus took his bride, the church, after the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension. So before that, he's still under the authority of his mother, Jerusalem. He's under the authority of the law, so to speak. How does Jerusalem, representative of Old Testament Israel, how, how does Jerusalem exercise its authority? It's parental authority, you might say. Through the law. Remember what we saw before. The Old Testament era was like the milk stage. The basic teaching, the law, is like the milk from the mother during the infancy stage. Now here's the question. How does Jerusalem, the mother, use the milk of the law in regard to Jesus? Scripture tells us that Jerusalem used the law to kill Jesus. The mother's milk became the means by which the son was killed. Here's what I mean. Last week we saw Jesus was arrested on a blasphemy charge, a violation of the law. And of course, he's not actually guilty of that. But the leaders of Jerusalem used that law as a means to bring about his death. In fact, they make it explicit. John 19, verse 7, the Jews answered Pilate, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he's made himself the son of God. The law was the tool that Jerusalem used to bring about Jesus' death. Symbolically or metaphorically, the mother, Jerusalem's milk, the law, was what Jesus was boiled in. How does God evaluate this whole thing? Well, Acts chapter 13, for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. In other words, Jerusalem abused and misused the law to kill Jesus. Why was the law given, remember? Choose life. Law and life go together. When Peter and John stood before the council in Jerusalem, the believers in the city prayed for boldness. Here's their prayer. They start by quoting Psalm 2. Why do the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then listen, for truly in this city, Jerusalem, 
They were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Let me give you one other just kind of line of reasoning here. Remember our series in Revelation. What was the whole point of the book of Revelation? It's essentially a divorce decree for Israel because they rejected and killed Jesus. It's detailing why the destruction of AD 70 happens to Jerusalem. And at the height of the judgment on Jerusalem, as you're reading the book of Revelation, Jerusalem is referred to for several chapters as a woman, but as Babylon. The city has taken on the characteristics of one who is God's enemy, who seeks the destruction of her own children. Revelation 17, verse 6, describes Jerusalem as the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. In other words, if she's drunk on their blood, she's being pictured as having devoured these children. Jerusalem is eating her children. It's not a stretch by any means to say that biblically Jerusalem is presented as the mother who kills her child, Jesus. Just as you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk because life and death were not to be mixed, so Jerusalem is guilty for using what God gave for life, the law. Remember what God says about the law, choose life. Law and life go together. Jerusalem uses what God gave for life, the law, as a means of death for her own child, Jesus. Now, if you're trying to take the principles that are in this and bring it forward to today, how does this apply to our own current day context? Because most of us aren't particularly tempted to boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Well, let me give you just one really obvious application today, and that's the issue of abortion. The Dobbs decision reversed a bad law, Roe versus Wade. But do you know what has happened to abortion since Dobbs? It's increased. Decisions have gone back to the states. Some states have increased, some have decreased. But at-home abortions are through the roof. Well, of course, what's missing in the discussion legally is the idea that the U.S. Constitution already protects these children, if we interpret it rightly, because a preborn person is a person, and the lives of all persons are constitutionally protected, Fifth Amendment, Fourteenth Amendment. Now, there are different bills that are put forward to deal with the abortion issue today. If you hear a bill presented as an equal protection bill, that's a bill that is biblically identifying the unborn as equally deserving of protection as any other person. Or if you hear it referred to as an abolition bill, that's a bill that's seeking to abolish abortion altogether. That's a biblical concept. That's what God demands of a justice system. But we today, 
use the blessing that God has given for life and we use it for death and we twist the intentions of what God has given us. I was thinking about this in terms of even just what's fetal tissue used for today. Some regulations have been tightened because of the work of undercover groups that have brought things to light that people didn't realize. But there's still a lot of fetal tissue sales going on, and that includes our government, government contracts with U.S. universities to do experimentation. In 2014, it came to light that fetal remains were being burned in Oregon to create electricity. Same thing happened last year in Baltimore, Maryland. Disposal of fetal tissue at abortion mills is an issue. It's an expense that many want to find some way to get around. And so instead of meeting what are generally called ethical requirements, they try to find other means, such as installing an industrial strength garbage disposal. And we read our Bibles, and we wonder how backward people must be to boil and eat their own children. At least they had the excuse of possible starvation. For us, it's simply a matter of convenience. Part of our problem is that we do not think the way God does about the issue. Exodus 23.19 lays out for us the principle that governs our thinking here. You put this together with the sixth commandment, do not murder. And we see that life and death should not be mixed that, that, that what God has given for life is sacred, that a mother relationship with a child is to be a life-giving, life-preserving relationship. And so a mother intentionally killing her own child is a horrible sin. It's murder. Is it forgivable? Yes, absolutely it is. By the grace of God, it can be forgiven. We were just talking on the way to church this morning. We forget, for example, that the Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, murdered Christians. God is a God of grace and great mercy. And so when God's forgiveness comes, there doesn't need to be shame that you live with. And we in the church need to proclaim that message clearly. But that's not what the church has done. Instead, we've handled it in an ungodly way by minimizing the sin. We've told mothers who kill their children that they too are victims. But that's not true. That's not God's evaluation of things. In light of the Dobbs decision last year, there were several pro-life organizations that came together to send out a, a joint letter specifically proclaiming that they believe a murdering mother should not be held accountable because she's a victim. In bold font, their letter said, we state unequivocally that we do not support any measure seeking to criminalize or punish women, and we stand firmly opposed to include such penalties in legislation. It went on to say, we must ensure that the laws we advance to protect unborn children do not harm their mothers. But here's the problem. God does not allow partiality. He does not exempt mothers from the command to not murder. Instead, 
God highlights that the relationship of mother and child should be above all else life-giving, life-preserving. And abortion flies in the face of that. That letter, by the way, was signed by the president of National Right to Life, the executive director of the Pro-Life Action League, the founder and chairman and the executive director of the Faith and Freedom Coalition, the acting president of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, and many state organizations, including the president of Ohio Right to Life. God calls murder a sin. And it's the job of the civil magistrate to punish evildoers. So mothers who murder their children should face legal consequences. God also calls partiality in civil magistrates a sin. When we have laws that treat some categories of people differently, that is a sin. When black people were officially considered to be three-fifths of the value of a white person. That was a sin. And when judges or civil rulers show partiality or favor toward a particular group, like mothers, that is a sin. And it will incur the judgment of God. We would do much better to listen to John Calvin's advice. He wrote, whatever be the offenses by which Satan and the world attempt to lead us away from the law of God, we must nevertheless strenuously proceed in the course which he prescribes. And secondly, that whatever dangers impend, we are not at liberty to deviate one nail's breadth from the command of God, that on no pretext is it lawful to attempt anything but what he permits. The prohibition of boiling a young goat in its mother's milk gives us a graphic visual of the principle that what God gives for life should not be twisted into a means of death. And the role of the mother is to be a life-giving, life-preserving role. Now, practically speaking, next month, we have an issue on the ballot here in Ohio. Issue one. Voting yes on issue one would enshrine in our state constitution the right to make and carry out one's own reproductive decisions, including decisions about abortion, fertility treatment, etc. In other words, it would grant a constitutional right to murder unborn children. The language says that it would allow the state to restrict abortion after fetal viability, but that's window dressing. That basically means you can't always murder them once they're bigger unless you come up with a good excuse. Let me be plain. Christians should vote no on issue one. Otherwise, you are directly opposing God's law. Two weeks ago, there was a bill of abolition that was scheduled to be introduced in Ohio that would have abolished all abortion, period, in the state. There was a representative who had agreed to bring this bill forward back in February, I believe, and had been working with a group to do that. And at the last minute, he backed out. Why? 
pressure from two groups, the Republicans and the pro-life industry. The Republicans didn't want it because they thought it was politically not viable. The pro-life industry, <clears throat> well, it's an industry. It brings in money. And that industry needs to perpetuate itself. And to get rid of abortion altogether, not financially good for that industry. There is someone running, by the way, who has every intention of bringing that bill forward and is completely dedicated to doing it. So keep your eyes on the lookout that that bill might be introduced at some point in our future. And if it is, you and I should jump on board and support it in every way we can. So how do we personally apply this? That was kind of a big picture application. How do we personally apply this in our own lives? Well, obviously, the first one is the abortion issue, and, and, and you and I can do that through voting and conversations that we have with people and participating in events and making calls to legislators and maybe even some of you here running for office. But let me give you two more examples of ways that I think we can take this principle and apply it to our lives in a way that's faithful to Scripture. The first has to do with our words. Our words. Let me just read to you a selection of verses. I'm going to read four verses from Proverbs. There are many more that I could have grabbed. But just listen to what these verses say about our words and about life and death. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Proverbs 18. A gentle tongue is a tree of life. Proverbs 15. A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club or a sword or a sharp arrow, Proverbs 25. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing, Proverbs 12. When God tells his people, now choose life, we can apply that to our words. What God has given for life and healing, the power of the tongue, we should not use for death or destruction or damage. And how often do we do that? I'm talking to myself. But the principle, don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk, I think tells me that I need to use my words for the life-giving purpose that God intended them for. Second application, the authority that God gives to parents. The authority that God gives to parents. God has given parents authority to discipline their children for their good. Discipline is life-giving. It preserves and nurtures life, but sometimes that authority is misused. We need to make the distinction between disciplining and punishing. Discipline is corrective. Its purpose is the right formation of the child into the person that honors God. It's designed to serve the development of the child. Punishment belongs to the civil magistrate. Its purpose is justice. 
It's not intended to disciple or to discipline. As Romans says, the civil magistrate is God's avenger carrying out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Think of it this way. God disciplines his children in this life and at the final day of judgment, what is their end? Eternal life. God patiently waits on the wicked in this life and at the final day of judgment, he will punish them and their end is eternal death. We said earlier that the sin of abortion can be forgiven. How? Because when Jesus went to the cross, he was taking punishment. He was taking God's wrath, God's justice, the divine judge executing vengeance on Jesus for our sin. Jesus took God's wrath, God's punishment for our sin. So God does not punish us. He disciplines us. And that leads to life. But those who reject Jesus will face God's wrath, God's punishment for their sins. When parents use their authority to punish rather than discipline, they are using something that God intended for life instead as a means of death or harm. They're serving a purpose which at its natural end brings death. So the law against boiling a, a young goat in its mother's milk can, I believe, be an effective illustration of a principle that should guide our parenting. Our principle this morning, case laws, illustrate larger principles that have broad application. We've seen a case law example. We've looked at a couple different ways that that can be applied. There are more. And what I encourage you to do is to follow the example of the psalmist and meditate on this law and understand what other applications God might have you to discern from it to apply to your life. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the law that you have given to us. We recognize that your law was given as a way of giving life. It's the right way for us to live. None of us have kept your law, and so we all deserve your punishment. We deserve your wrath. But for those of us who have faith in Christ, he has taken that wrath, that punishment for us. And instead now, we've graduated to become your sons who are disciplined in love toward the end of eternal life. May we be thankful this morning for what Christ has done for us, willingly undergoing the abuse of Jerusalem who twisted the law and used it as a means to murder their own child, Jesus. Jesus knowingly did that in order to take my punishment on the cross, to give me the freedom to live without the law's penalty hanging over my head, to live in the freedom of sons. I pray that we would be thankful for that gift of salvation given to us in Christ this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.